My favorite thing to do when I'm commuting or waiting on a long line is hop onto June's journey and escape into a game filled with compelling stories, strong female characters, and a true crime mystery I want to help solve. The game lets you step into the role of June Parker as she tries to figure out who killed her sister. By playing the Hidden Object Mystery mobile game, you put your detective skills to the test. You find clues, play mind-teasing puzzles, and dive into the roaring 1920s. I'm on chapter four and still trying to figure out how these clues will help me crack the case of who did it and why, but I can't do it alone. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Wedded bliss turns into a dark mystery in Lucy Foley's The Guest List. The thrilling mystery is set on the coast of Ireland and it's my latest pick to listen to on Audible. The twists and turns do not disappoint. Listening to it felt addicting because I needed to know what happened next. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking audio titles, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers that are guaranteed to keep you on the edge of your seat. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. It is the home of storytelling after all. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. That's audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. She was a beautiful socialite. She always tried to have that Marilyn Monroe type persona. He was a hard partying businessman who could never be pinned down. I think he felt he had done well by marrying her. But when this fun-loving playboy falls victim to a vicious attack, the party is cut short. They had found five or six ounces of cocaine and seven or eight to $10,000. We initially thought that that's a probable cause for a dope hit. The ensuing investigation will uncover a web of lust, power, and deceit. She writes these rapturous things all about what it's like to sleep with him. They had a lot of problems going on. Everything was a battle. And when the truth is revealed, it will bring investigators face to face with a ruthless killer hiding in plain sight. He's going to pay him $10,000 to do the murder. I think there's a great deal of evil in her. He goes, I know who you are, and I know what you did. March 22nd, 1980, Santa Clara, California. It's around 9.30 p.m. as Howard Witkin's friends, Robert and Kathleen, pull up to his residence. Howard had quite a few friends, and he had apparently arranged uh, for some get-together on the weekend, and he didn't show up, which was a little, little unusual. They went over to do a security check to see if he's okay. As Robert and Kathleen walk up to the front porch, they make a terrifying discovery. They notice there's blood on the uh, doorstep and it might appear to be obvious bullet holes in the, in the front door. Kathleen and Robert rush to a neighbor's home to dial 911. The Santa Clara Police Department arrives within minutes. The door was still locked. There's no sign that it had been forced, so the officers themselves forced the uh, sliding door and uh, made entry. 
As they make their way back to the front entryway, investigators find Howard. And a 14-year-long mystery begins. We didn't know anybody who could want to hurt Howard. Though he was born into Santa Clara's upper crust, by the time Howard Witkin made it to college at the University of Puget Sound in Washington, he was more concerned with having fun than one day running his family's glass business. Howard is the fun-loving, crazy, adventurous person. He's the type that would, you could be in the car going to the grocery store, next thing he's like, hey, let's go to Washington. He liked to have people around him. He was, like I say, sort of life of the party in, in a sense. In 1968, while visiting friends back in California, Howard noticed a striking young woman at a party. She wore very tailored, beautiful outfits. She was very slender. Her name was Judy Adele. Raised in an upper-class Detroit neighborhood, Judy had a life any girl would dream of. She had a bowling alley in the, in the basement and maids that waited on them and nine bedrooms. She always tried to have that Marilyn Monroe type persona. She was really successful in high school. She was a member of lots of clubs, studied, got good grades. In 1967, Judy was accepted into the prestigious Mills College in Oakland, California, and declared her major as religious studies. She didn't seem at all ambitious professionally. Judy told her friends that all she ever wanted was to be a mother and have a bunch of kids. When she met Howard Witkin, it seemed Judy was on her way to the life she'd always hoped for. From my understanding, he just fell head over heels. To Judy, Howard represented stability and prestige and wealth. The couple's engagement a few months later was the social event of the season. Judy and Howard had a great old style kind of an engagement and everything was celebrated with big parties and they had a huge wedding, very traditional wedding, and then went off for like three weeks to Europe for a honeymoon. When the couple returned from their honeymoon, Howard finished school and stepped in to run his father's glass factory. Then in 1969, Judy's wish to become a mother finally came true when she gave birth to a son. Judy called her firstborn son, Daniel, the little messiah. She couldn't wait until she had a bunch of kids. But fate had other plans. She had some miscarriages and was told that she couldn't conceive and was just completely overwrought about this. But Judy was never one to give up easily, and she quickly started looking for other ways to have the large family she dreamed of. Finally, she and Howard adopted a young girl, Marie. I even recall the day that we actually went to the lawyer's office and as a family, and we signed the adoption papers. Everybody seemed really excited. Judy just said, welcome to the family. We love you, you know? It felt good to feel like somebody wanted you. The family of four settled into a comfortable life in sunny California 
where their social calendar revolved around life at the local temple. We would all go every Friday night on the Sabbath to the temple. We would go to a lot of the bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, all the high holidays. While Judy was thrilled to have the stable, loving family she had always dreamed of, Howard was struggling with the weight of his responsibilities. I think in some ways they married too early because my dad was still kind of like going through his wild stage still, you know, wanting to hang out with his friends. They had more and more arguments. Arguments over him being out late at night, arguments over him gambling, uh, being with the guys too much. Not even the miraculous birth of a third child, Nathan, could keep Howard at home. As her marriage began to crumble, Judy spent more and more time at her temple, where she met Bob Singer, a businessman and married father of three, 14 years Judy's senior. Bob seemed like a really nice man. He was running a vending company with his father. He was always in suits, drove a nice car. They meet over fundraising and gradually go out for lunch and get closer and closer. By 1976, Judy and Bob's friendship had grown into something more. This became eventually an open secret, and it was sort of became this big scandal at the synagogue that Judith Whitkin was seeing Bob Singer. You heard the arguments. You heard the slamming of the doors. Dad, I, he just got to the point where he just had enough. In 1978, Judy and Howard divorced and Bob Singer and his wife soon followed suit. Judy started spending more time with Bob, and then they got married. Their divorce from their spouses causes such a scandal in their community that Judy tells Bob that she can no longer live in San Jose. In 1979, Judy, Bob, and their children moved from sunny California to Michigan where Judy's wealthy family still lived. There, in December of 1979, Bob bought a franchise of The Onion Crock, a local soup and sandwich restaurant. He opened up the restaurant, and we all kind of helped get the place up and running. Back in California, Howard was enjoying the single life after 10 years as a family man. I mean, women found him attractive, and he had the right personality. You know, he was like this cuddly teddy bear. He was a man being a man, <laughs> you know? Little did Howard know that his new life would end nearly as soon as it began. Howard was laying on the floor, belly up, and he had obvious bullet wounds to the stomach areas and also both arms. When detectives begin to survey the scene, one motive is immediately ruled out. The front door was locked. There were a number of shots through the front door, and it just didn't meet the uh, smell test of a, a robbery. So this was obviously a planned killing of some type. Whoever the suspect was wanted him dead. Coming up. A curious discovery sends detectives down a seedy path in search of a motive. Maybe it was a drug deal that went bad. 
and investigators land their first suspect. He was jealous of the fact that she was going out with Howard. Jealousy is always a motive for homicide. On March 22, 1980, detectives in Santa Clara, California, are investigating the violent murder of Howard Whitkin. We had patrol officers checking the neighborhood for possible witnesses. We had evidence people inside processing the interior of the house. I could look at the crime scene and guess various scenarios, but I, I just didn't know. Canvassing the home, investigators find 22-millimeter casings near the front door and front gate. This is what we surmised at the time, that whoever it was probably went and knocked on the door and ran back to where the gate was. And when Howard came out, he had to step out onto the cement step to see who it was. And at that time, whoever it was shot at him. Bobby hit him, so Howard then ran back inside the house, closed the door, and the guy, whoever it was, ran up and shot through the door. Obviously, from the number of rounds fired through there, Investigators' first question is, who would want Howard dead? While crime scene experts pick apart the scene, Santa Clara officers canvass the neighborhood. They uh, located uh, two witnesses that heard what they thought were gunshots or similar to gunshots the night before. They assumed they were firecrackers and did not call in. So we were able to establish the probable time of the homicide based on their statements. Investigators ask neighbors if they had noticed anything else suspicious that day. We also found out in the meantime that a neighbor had copied down a license plate of a car going through the neighborhood. It was a 1970 Chevy Malibu. Two nights prior to when we found the body, he saw a suspicious vehicle driving around the complex there. He thought it was unusual, so he followed it. He couldn't identify the drivers or give me any more information. We ran a plate as a California plate, and it came back not on file. While leads outside seem to be drying up, investigators inside make a game-changing discovery. We found a safe in Howard Whitkin's residence, and we called the installer the safe people. We were able to finally get someone out to open the safe for us. When detectives look inside, they're disturbed by what they find. They informed me that they had found the, I think, five or six ounces of cocaine and seven or eight to $10,000 worth of cash. We initially thought that that's a probable cause for uh, uh, maybe a dope hit. Either somebody owed him money, he owed somebody money. Maybe it was a drug deal that went bad. The next morning, as a team of officers continues to examine the crime scene, detectives pay a visit to Howard's father, hoping to learn more about his son's personal life. He was completely shocked. Of course, he's visibly upset. He has no idea who could do anything like that. Mr. Whitkin tells police that after Howard's divorce from his wife, Judy, he had initially embraced the bachelor lifestyle. But as the months passed, Howard started to miss his family. He missed his kids. Judy remarried and moved to Flint, Michigan, and uh, had custody of the children. The victim wanted to get visitation rights, and they had a court hearing scheduled. But he said that there didn't seem to be any real problem there. 
there's no animosity toward Judy or in between the victim and Judy. When asked about the possibility Howard was involved in the drug trade, his father is shocked. He was stunned that Howard was involved in cocaine. With Howard's father unable to provide any new leads, on March 25, 1980, three days after Howard's body was found, detectives call his ex-wife, Judy Singer, to deliver the tragic news. She says she's upset not to hear about it. I mean, but she's very cordial to me, very remorseful. She just stated it. She's sorry to hear that that happened. However, when detectives mention the cocaine in Howard's safe, Judy says she's not entirely surprised. Judy told one of the detectives that one of the reasons that she and Howard ended up splitting up was because of his drug use. According to Judy, Howard's new lifestyle was the main reason she was hesitant to let her children visit Howard alone. My dad had his own little stash of shrooms and his own little stash of coke and his own little stash of weed. And I know people come and knock on the door. Hey, I can get a blunt or two. They had a court hearing pending. He wanted visitation rights, particularly with a young kid. And she says, he's just a young baby. and. I didn't want him around Howard's lifestyle. Judy says that since the divorce, she hasn't been back in California and hasn't kept track of who Howard parties with. But she claims that Howard's best friend, Philip Frandler, might have some insight. She had no idea who would want to kill him or what would be you know, the motive for the type of killing. After speaking with Judy, detectives set up a meeting with Philip Frandler. After some hesitation, Philip admits that he and Howard sold cocaine, but insists that his childhood friend was no drug kingpin. Frandler said that they did sell some drugs, but only to the extent that they could finance their own use of the drugs. I think he used cocaine as a social lubricant at parties. This wasn't a drug, big-time drug dealer. So that would negate probably a drug hit. When investigators ask Philip if there is anyone else they should talk to, he mentions Howard's newest girlfriend, Stephanie Brown. He mentioned that Howard was dating a girl from the card club and that she had a ex-boyfriend who was extremely jealous and that the possibility that if he thought of anybody at all, that he would be the most likely person to do this. That enhanced our interest even more. So uh, he became very much of a person uh, that we were interested in. Investigators work quickly to bring Stephanie in. When we contacted her, she was upset. She had a lot of strong feelings for Howard and uh, uh, seemed to be uh, obviously upset about his death. Stephanie admits that she and Howard had been casually dating and she would frequently go to his home, something that upset her now ex-boyfriend, a card player named Henry Brooks. She had a very jealous ex-boyfriend and uh, was jealous of the fact that she was going out with Howard. Then, Stephanie offers investigators a compelling piece of evidence. Their boyfriend did own a 22. Coming up, the killer makes a fatal error. 
he noticed that Gary had a lot of money, and he was talking about get a tan. He'd gone to California. At this point, began to put two and two together that there was something wrong here. And an eyewitness exposes a shocking suspect. He's going to pay him ten thousand dollars to do the murder. Hey, Snap listeners, did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight? As the days get longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. It's the award-winning home security I use and recommend. When the weather is nicer and daylight is lasting longer, I find myself going out for walks and out of the house more. That's why I like Simply Safe to protect my home 24-7. Simply Safe offers advanced technology to protect every room, window, or door of your home while cameras keep watch for suspicious activity 24-7. Plus, you install the system your way. It's easy to do it yourself or get the professionals to do it for you. You can test it out, absolutely no risk to you, with Simply Safe's 60-day risk-free trial. I like Simply Safe because it's customizable for everyone's personal needs. I love to use the video doorbell for my packages and feel more safe when I'm home alone. I even installed a smart lock at my parents' house. It gives our family both ease of access and peace of mind. Protect your home today. Our listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/snapped. That's simplysafe.com/snapped. There's no safe like Simply Safe. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. In March 1980... Investigators from the Santa Clara Police Department are closing in on Henry Brooks, the ex-boyfriend of the woman Howard Whitkin was allegedly involved with before his death. He is an ex-boyfriend, so jealousy is always a motive for homicide. So obviously we're gonna look closely at him too. Investigators ask Henry Brooks to come in for an interview where he immediately denies any involvement in Howard's death. They really had no hard feelings against Whitkin. He did admit that he had a 22 rifle, and he was willing to turn that over to us so we can compare it with the casings. Also, he was willing to take a polygraph test to show that he had nothing to do with the killing. And he took the polygraph and passed it. The crime lab also does a thorough analysis of Henry's rifle. Ballistics came back, and it was not his gun used as a murder weapon. After clearing their most promising lead, investigators are at a dead end. Then, on April 2nd, 11 days into their investigation, the Santa Clara Police Department receives an unexpected call from a detective in Flint, Michigan. Flint, Michigan called over to San Jose PD, said, are you guys handling an active murder? 
He said that an informant he had approached him and told him that he had been approached to kill an individual in California, specifically Santa Clara. On June 2nd, 1980, investigators fly to Flint, Michigan, where they meet the informant, a local restaurant manager named Kevin McCarthy. Kevin says that in early March, the owner of the restaurant where he works came to him with a strange request. He was trying to find a hitman to come out to California to kill somebody. He wanted the manager to find somebody for him. He was stunned at first. He thought it was a joke. I mean, how often does someone approach you and say, do you know anyone to kill someone for me? McCarthy says a few weeks later on March 25th, he discovered that one of the busboys, Gary Oliver, had just returned from a vacation with his friend, Andy Granger, and was flashing a wallet full of $100 bills. He noticed that Gary had a lot of money. He was a dishwasher, he didn't make much money. And he was talking about, he had a tan, he'd gone to California. Kevin says that's when he remembered that his boss had just returned from a funeral in California. McCarthy, at this point, began to put two and two together that there was something wrong here. Had the restaurant owner hired a busboy to do his dirty work instead? Santa Clara detectives immediately want to know the name of Kevin's boss. The informant was the manager at a restaurant called The Onion Croc, which was a franchise restaurant owned by Bob Singer. He was the current husband of the uh, victim's ex-wife, Judy Singer. Before bringing in Bob himself, investigators want to speak to 21-year-old busboy Gary Oliver and 20-year-old Andy Granger. So we interviewed Gary Oliver first. He immediately told us he didn't want to talk to us and wanted a lawyer. So we didn't continue questioning. So he brought Andy Granger in. He's a very outgoing, sort of daredevilish type of an individual. Andy Granger spilled the beans immediately and seemed eager to confess to the police. Andy tells officers that back in March, his friend Gary Oliver said that Bob Singer had hired him to commit a murder. He's going to pay him $10,000 to do the murder. Gary Oliver told Andy Granger, I'm getting 5,000 and I'll split it with you. Andy says that the pair left for California in a gold 1970s Chevy Malibu with Andy's Marlin 22 rifle. They had a picture of the victim, the address, uh, phone numbers, those type of things that they needed to identify where the victim lived. They uh, drove to the uh, area and uh, they didn't want to park near the victim's townhouse. They parked about a block or so away. Gary got out and put the uh, rifle down his pant leg and walked over to the victim's house. Howard had to step out onto the cement step to see who it was. And at that time, Gary shot at him. Andy says that Gary rushed back to the car and they sped away. Investigators are floored, but the story is just beginning. The Michigan State Police interview rooms were fairly thin, so Gary Oliver could hear Andy's story. He asked the uh, guard there that he wanted to talk to the Santa Clara authorities again. Gary tells officers that he is finally ready to come clean. 
He says that his boss, Bob Singer, had spent weeks trying to find an assassin. He told Gary Oliver, I want to hire somebody to kill somebody, but I don't know who to do it. And Gary said, oh, I'll do it. Gary admits that he originally planned to shoot Howard himself. But as they drove to California, he started to have second thoughts. He apparently just completely lost confidence and told Andrew that he wanted to drive back to Flint and tell Bob Singer that he couldn't do it. Granger wasn't having it. Oh, no, we're out here to do the job. We should, we should do it, you know. So, according to Gary, Andy agreed to be the trigger man. Both admitted to coming out to do the killing, and uh, the only bone of uh, contention was that Granger said that Oliver pulled the trigger. Oliver said Granger pulled the trigger. Investigators confront Andy with Gary's side of the story. At that point, he finally admitted to me, yeah, it was me that did it. Andy says that on the night of March 22nd, he walked up to Howard's home and lured him outside. He said, I fired at him, but he went back inside the house, so I ran up to the front door, and then I shot through the door. After hearing their accounts, detectives charge Andy Granger and Gary Oliver with murder and conspiracy. Now, investigators need to bring down the ringleader, Bob Singer. Investigators subpoena Bob's financial records and quickly learn that the supposedly well-heeled restaurant owner has been living a lie. Bob Singer was not only had no money, he was a terrible businessman. His restaurant in Flint, Michigan was failing badly. Howard, on the other hand, had plenty of money. Bob may on his own figure well to save my restaurant. I'll send somebody out to kill this guy so that way the kids will inherit the money. I can use that money to save my restaurant. With a solid motive and multiple witnesses, investigators arrest Bob on June 6, 1980. Bob Singer refused to waive his rights, so uh, they took him into custody and no further questioning. Coming up, a stunning turn of events exposes a love affair that no one could imagine. She looks through his files and discovers, to her surprise, that there's a lot of letters there, love letters. It's unbelievable, but it happened. It was huge. Who else would have a better motive than to see him shipped away? In July of 1981, all eyes in Santa Clara, California, are on the trial of Bob Singer and his hitman, Andy Granger. This case was so full of extraordinary characters, it was like nothing I'd covered before. There was a lawyer who came from Beverly Hills. There was a lot of press attention, and there was a lot of drama. The courtroom was packed. As for co-conspirator Gary Oliver, he opts to turn state's witness. Gary Oliver ratted out Bob and Andy. And so because of that, he was given a reduced sentence. When Bob Singer and Andy Granger's trial gets underway, 
Prosecutors allege that Bob was a man mired in debt and desperate for money. Uh, apparently, he was not a good restaurant owner or manager. Uh, he was apparently taking money on the till, and things just weren't going well financially for him. But the defense says otherwise. Bill Melcher, the attorney, kept telling us that there were drug mobs after the victim. In the trial, he tried to imply that it was a hit gone bad, and actually, Bob Singer was the victim. You know, I don't get the logic there, but that's what the implication was. By Bob's side every step of the way is his wife, Judy. She would walk into court every day and be laughing with the attorney, and they'd be whispering together, sitting very close to each other. And she never particularly looked as if she was unhappy that her first husband had been killed and her new husband was on trial. On August 3rd, 1981, the jury finds Andy Granger guilty of first-degree murder and sentences him to life in prison. But on Bob's case, the jury can't make up its mind. Bob Singer is a home jury on him. In the first trial, the one juror who held out thought he could not be a murderer because he was a nice-looking man. I was not a happy camper, but we got no choice, and we have to try it again. In January 1982, Bob, Judy, and their attorney, Bill Melcher, returned to the courtroom for round two. The second trial was easier because we'd been down that road, and the jury found Bob Singer guilty, first-degree murder. Judy seemed as if she were surprised. She burst out in tears. Bob is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Minutes later, after Bob is led away in chains, Bill Melcher and Judy Singer hold a press conference on the steps of the courthouse. There, Bill makes a surprising announcement. Judy was going to go to law school and join his firm, and Bill Melcher said she had a brilliant legal mind. They were also going to write a book about the case, and there were movie companies already interested in it. This is right after Bob Singer is convicted. Ultimately, Judy and Bill's dreams of a shared law practice and movie deals don't pan out. After Bob was convicted and went to prison, Judy divorced him and took the kids and went back to Michigan. The case seems closed, but in February 1984, two years after Bob's conviction, prosecutors, judges, and journalists all receive a strange package from a woman named Leslie Bennett. Leslie Bennett is the secretary for the defense lawyer, Bill Melcher, and she knows she's going to get fired. So while he's up in San Jose, she looks through his files and discovers to her surprise that there's a lot of letters there, love letters from Judy Singer to Bill Melcher. She photocopied some of these love letters that Judy Singer sent to Bill Melcher. And when he fired her, she sent letters to everyone who she could think of, state bar, the DA's office, defense attorneys. Judy writes these rapturous things to Bill Melcher, all about what it's like to sleep with him in great detail. Copies of the letters eventually make it all the way to Bob Singer's maximum security prison cell. Bob Singer is so furious when he sees these letters 
that he sends them to his new attorney who's working on his appeal. And his attorney realizes that they are great fodder for a possible appeal. It was huge because he had a massive conflict of interest. He's in a romantic relationship with the defendant's wife. Who else would have a better motive than to seeing him shipped away? After winding through the appeals courts, a judge rules in favor of a new trial in December 1990. But rather than face another jury, Bob tells prosecutors he wants a plea deal, and in exchange, he will reveal the true mastermind of Howard Witkin's murder. He said Judy Singer was the driving force behind this whole homicide. According to Bob, Judy and Howard's divorce was not as amicable as she had led police to believe. They had a lot of problems going on, just fighting over the money and fighting over visitations. Everything was a battle. The visitation issue was a big thing for her. And I think she just did not like Howard Quitkin at all. The thing that really set it off was when Howard decided that he was going to file a custody request to have full custody of their three children. According to Bob, Judy badgered him for weeks to find someone to kill Howard before the custody hearing on April 1st. Judy Singer was a ruthless person and wanted to get what she wanted to get. She kept pressuring Bob Singer to do it. I think Bob loved Judy very much. The main reason he committed the murder, I believe, is because Judith threatened to leave him if he didn't. Bob says that when he was arrested for Howard's murder, he and Judy agreed that he would take the fall for the crime. I think Judy convinced him that it was best for the kids to have an adult with them, one of the parents. And he really loved those kids. I think his goal was to protect her, which is why he sat there, got convicted, took a sentence of life without parole, and never once said a word about Judith being behind it. Now, after 10 years in jail, Bob tells prosecutors that he's not covering for Judy anymore. I think Bob decided to finally testify against her because he learned that she had been having an affair with his lawyer during his first trial, which is unbelievable, but it happened. So he said, why am I doing this to hide for Judy when she betrayed me? Bob was very eager to cooperate with the prosecutors. He told the prosecutors everything he knew and then took a polygraph to confirm it. Bob passed his polygraph test. I mean, I kind of knew. I looked at it like, for me to know in my mind that Judy did it, Judy had to put Bob up to doing it. But Bob's statement isn't enough. Prosecutors need hard evidence to prove Judy's involvement. Before they will sign the plea deal, they want Bob to help them get a confession. They had set up phone call between Bob and Judy, and they were hoping to get an admission out of Judy. Bob said, you know, they're trying to get me to roll over on you. Judy was smart, and she was too smart to fall for that. I think she caught on pretty quickly to what he was trying to do and didn't say anything that would confirm that she had been involved. But nor did she deny it. The phone call isn't a confession, 
but it is enough to convince prosecutors that Bob is telling the truth. On August 14, 1991, Bob pleads guilty to first-degree murder and is sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. On August 27th of 1991, a judge signs an arrest warrant for Judy Singer. On August 28th of 1991, officers from Michigan and Sandy Williams, the DA's investigator, come to Judy's apartment and knock on her door. When Judy doesn't respond, investigators call her father for answers. He says she left with her son, Nathan, a while ago without telling anyone where she was going. The police are convinced at this point that Judy is on the lam. Coming up, a frantic search begins. I think she might have even gone to Canada, so the clock is ticking. And a guilty conscience leads to desperation. He goes, I know who you are, Judy, and I know what you did. And she said, what's it going to take? How much money do you want? On August 28, 1991, investigators from the Flint and Santa Clara Police Departments discover that murder suspect Judy Singer is on the run. I think she might have even gone to Canada. So the clock is ticking. They issue a statewide alert, and they're worried that she might already have reached the border. As police across Michigan search for Judy, investigators receive a call from Richard Goldstein, Judy's lawyer. He tells them that she is not trying to escape, and she's willing to come in, but she wants it to be on her terms. Shortly after 5 p.m. on September 4th of 1991, Judy finally turns herself in. I couldn't believe it. It was, it, was, it was quite a shock. In the summer of 1994, Judy's trial begins. As part of the plea deal, Bob testifies against his ex-wife. And since Judy's arrest, other witnesses have also come forward. I did testify in Judy's trial. I felt like somebody had to avenge his murder. Somebody had to get to the truth. Someone had to do it. Marie says she suspected that Judy was involved for years, and in 1986, she decided to do some investigation of her own. My fiance, Greg, said, let's call your mom. <laughs> let's pull a prank. I was like, nah, we shouldn't do this. She's gonna, he's like, nah, she ain't gonna know my voice. I was like, all right. He got on the phone, he goes, I know who you are, Judy, and I know what you did. She would be like, what's it going to take? How much money do you want? And my fiance was so shocked. He just looked at me and hung up the phone. He goes, she really did it. She really did it. Prosecutors also called to the stand Bob Singer's youngest son, Eric Singer. At the time of the murder, he said that he had heard Bob and Judy arguing in their room. He went up and he listened outside the room, and he heard Judy say, I want him dead, Bob. I want him dead. On September 20th, Judy takes the stand to tell her side of the story. She was very self-confident, and she presented herself of 
I am totally innocent. Bob did the whole thing. I didn't know about it. I was told by detectives at Santa Clara PD, you'll never get Judy. I feared greatly the jury might believe her. On October 4th, 1994, the jury announces that they have reached a verdict. She was convicted as charged. Murder in the first degree with special circumstances. I think what I did was I just put my head down in my hands and said, thank God, justice has been done. I just hope that people will see who Judy is, to know the real Judy, to not want to have anything to do with this woman. Judy is sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. She was already working on her appeal, and she was confident that she would not be in prison very long. 17 years pass, and in 2011, faced with overcrowded prisons, the governor of California decides to commute the sentences of offenders who are no longer considered a threat. On June 4, 2019, 71-year-old Judy seems to fit the bill, and she is summoned before a parole board. She had aged about 40 years, and her hair was gray, and she was obviously despondent and she stared at the table all the time she's in a wheelchair she has all sorts of ailments including lupus she's a woman elderly ill so all those things made it unlikely that she would commit new crimes i think by the end of it the commissioners felt that they almost had no choice but to grant her parole on october 16th 2019 after spending 25 years in prison for orchestrating her ex-husband's murder, Judy is released from prison. I'm livid to the point it just makes me just shake. I'm so angry. She doesn't deserve to live what little life she has left. Not when my father wasn't given a chance to live his life. I never heard Judy express a word of regret I don't think to this day she regrets it. I think there's a great deal of evil in her. I've interviewed a lot of really scary people, but the only person who really haunted me all through these decades was this upper middle class, synagogue going mother of three. Bob Singer was released on parole in 2009. He died in 2018. Angie Granger remains in prison. Gary Oliver pleaded guilty to lesser charges and was released after serving a shorter sentence. For more information on Snapped, go to Oxygen.com.
Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new, stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top in his Cuisinart. Or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.